0: Hi, welcome to Living Catholic, the weekly podcast from the Diocese of Birmingham, where we talk to Catholic leaders about living our Catholic faith authentically and with joy. Uh, I am joined today by Deacon Keith Strom of M3 Ministries, Deacon Keith is the executive director of the ministry. He's the author of several books, including Blaze: Five Essential Paradigm Ships for Parish Renewal, and Jesus, The Story You Thought You Knew. Um, through M3 Ministries, Deacon Keith is focused on educating and coaching parishes on changing their culture to nurture missionary disciples, uh, increasing parish engagement, outreach, and evangelization. He's also a well-known conference speaker and a media personality. Uh, Deacon, welcome to Living Catholic.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the uh, invitation.
0: Well, we're really excited to have you because, as I mentioned uh, before we came on the air, our bishop has called for a year of the parish in the Eucharist. We're reaching out for resources on living parish life more vibrantly and effectively. Your ministry seemed like a natural fit uh, for what we're doing. So I thought I would start by asking a really simple question. What does M3 stand for?
1: Yeah, that's always, people always get it confused for 3M, right? And then they they think I'm into uh, uh, whatever, sticky tape or or post-it notes or some stuff like that. Um, It it really focuses on the life cycle of evangelization, or as I like to call it, the life cycle of the church, which is um, making, maturing, and missioning disciples of Jesus Christ. So kind of traveling with people all throughout that journey, uh, growing in relationship with Christ in maturity, and then in willingness to share Jesus with others.
0: Wow, that, that, that's a wonderful concept. So it's really aimed at, you say, is it personal formation, parish formation, all of the above?
1: It's all of the above, really. Um, uh, the, the, fo- the focus often is working with parishes to help them in this journey of renewal, but that often means um, really working with individuals to raise up a generation of missionary leaders, so men and women who are making this journey. Uh, because that has to be done, right? The the work of transforming parishes is the work of transforming lives.
0: So, how did you get into this ministry? Uh, that's really, you know, I just feel
1: like that's where the Holy Spirit has had had a, 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 a just a definite path. That if it if He had revealed it to me 15, 20 years ago, I would have run screaming. Um, uh, I I really worked in the corporate world for many years as a, a an executive, as a marketing executive. Uh, while also still being very involved in parish life and in and speaking and, and uh, forming. I began in youth ministry and then forming other adult ministers of youth and forming catechists. And uh, then the, the real need has always been, how do we help others encounter Jesus? And so within parishes that I was just a part of, uh, I began to work with uh, the leadership and became part of the leadership there. And then I found this really incredible melding of the corporate experience I had with Um, with really these kind of principles of evangelization and my passion for helping others encounter Jesus. So it just sort of came together and just um, doors started opening and parishes started reaching out. And I was doing work in this area before I really had formed a ministry. So uh, I was very, very grateful to be where I am right now.
0: You know, you're also ordained, you're a deacon in the Catholic church and listening to your description, I'm, I'm thinking back to the Origin of the DAC and the Book of Acts, and I'm thinking, yeah, that's that's pretty much what these guys are supposed to do. They, yeah. They've got some skill at organization. How do we take the church's resources and make them effective and free up the priests to preach the gospel? Uh, so he really took that that uh, administrative skill and human skill, and you put it to work in a very deacony way. You know, it's funny because
1: I don't often think about think about it that way. Uh, but you're absolutely right. And it was really in discerning my own spiritual gifts. I worked a lot with the Catherine of Siena Institute. Sherry Waddell co-founded that, and mm-hmm. she's the author of the book, Forming Intentional Disciples. And it was actually discerning my spiritual gifts that made my vocation to the diaconate crystal clear. So uh, it's been great. And God uses everything. So it's been an an, an opportunity to use everything that I've received and everything I've experienced. So
0: that's so beautiful. Yeah. So, you know, I want to get into parish life in a second, but when I was going through your, your biography and your bibliography, I noticed the book on Jesus Yes. and the title of your book on Jesus suggests that people are missing something about Jesus. And so I want to know, what do you think people are missing about Jesus and what do you want them to know about Jesus? Mm,
1: I mean, I would say, you know, part of it, I would say part of it is the you know, the marketing arm of of the publishing company says, okay, we got to come up with a catchy title. So yeah. <laughs> that de- it, it definitely is a catchy title. But I, I wrote the book because so many Catholics um, often see God, see Jesus as distant, right? Almost as abstract as a concept. And so if I would say, what is it that people are often missing? It's the person of Jesus, not Jesus as a concept, but that Jesus is, uh, you know, a divine person, who uh, out of love um, sought us out and lived and died for us and rose from the dead so that we could be reunited with the Father. And, and that connection to the very person of Jesus is, I think, at the heart of Catholicism, of course. It's the heart of the gospel. And it is, it is really in what often in parishes doesn't happen in a structured, intentional way, unfortunately.
0: You know, what you just said, in a nutshell, is the kerygma. Pope Francis draws us back to the, Jesus is a person incarnate God who out of love for us taught, lived, died and rose again so that we might come to the father. You just said the Kerygma. I mean, so
1: yes, in fact, and so Jesus, story you thought you knew is a written proclamation of the Kerygma uh, with, uh, with questions that people can dive into it. So I've broken the Kerygma down into particular chapters and, 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 and why, and it's because the Kerygma is the heart of everything, right? I mean, the church says that, that it's the kerygma that awakens faith. It's the proclamation of the kerygma that awakens faith. And so I would say faith is always already a supernatural, I'm sorry, proclamation of the kerygma is always already a supernatural event.
0: Now, you know, on your website, I noticed you actually have a one-page summary of the kerygma, the message about the death and resurrection of Jesus for our salvation. And, yes. uh, and it, it it obviously rolls off of your tongue, quite naturally, it's just this expression of your personality, your love for God, your engagement in the church. I take it that that's one of the things that you want to build in parishes at at the heart of their own renewal.
1: It's absolutely, fundamentally, the entire church is founded on Jesus and the person of Jesus and what he's done for us. And so uh, it's essential. It's essential for every disciple to know the gospel message, to be able to wrestle with it, know what it means for them personally, and then to be willing and able to share it with others. And so that that has to be the part of it. And, and changing culture means surrounding, um, uh, you know, in the structures and processes and language of a parish, of a community, uh, things that support the telling of the Kerygma, the experiencing of the Kerygma. Absolutely. It's a big part of it.
0: So do you work with priests in uh, specifically? And do you, I mean... How do you, how do you work with a priest to encourage him to make that central to his own priestly vocation?
1: So I, I don't often, unless, unless a pastor brings me in Mm -hmm. one-on-one or, or is wants me to kind of accompany their parish. um, I don't often get to do that directly one-on-one, but I do speak at a lot of priests. I guess you can call them conferences or education days or whatever they call them convocations. Um, And I, I have a, uh, a whole seg- segment where I talk about called to be sons. Uh, and I basically do a sharing of the charisma and the sharing of my own testimony. And then I invite all of the priests in the room to surrender their lives to Jesus. Beautiful. Um, and so, yeah. And, and, and really the grace of ordination is founded on and grounded in the grace of baptism.
0: That's and true. so
1: I- I- if you think about it, the more we can cooperate with the grace of baptism and live as sons and daughters, right? For priests and deacons, then the greater they'll be able to cooperate with the grace of ordination. And so that should magnify those graces and fruitfulness.
0: Yeah. I know from reading about you and talking to you that you're very animated by what Pope Francis calls missionary discipleship. And you're a big fan of his apostolic exhortation, Evangelii Gaudium, the the joy of the gospel. So what's your definition of a missionary disciple?
1: Uh, I mean, a missionary disciple is someone who has taken personal responsibility for Christ's mission to the world. Uh, and is willing to invest in uh, in others to share the very reality of the gospel message to to be a channel of God's goodness, love, providence to manifest the kingdom of God in the midst of the world, in the midst of every cultural situation that they're in. And and th- while that sounds kind of like a, a big definition, it's really it's really being a channel of God's love everywhere you are in the world.
0: Okay, so how is that different from proselytism? You know, I mean, I think it's very, very interesting. I
1: guess in one sense, proselytism always to me has the uh, kind of has the connotation of stealing, <laughs> right? Yeah. Of, you know, or, or of badgering, right? Uh, uh, and, and I would say this would be proposing, right? I, I think John Paul II said that, you know, we don't, we don't impose the faith we propose. And so as we live as disciples, as we manifest the kingdom of God everywhere we go, people encounter the love of the Father in Jesus Christ and their hearts themselves are changed and touched as their lives are changed and touched. And and so it's very natural. What it should evoke in others is a desire for them to experience. And so so I never say, like, I don't even like that phrase, I'm gonna bring Jesus to people, right? I don't, that to me is backwards, right? What I wanna do is I wanna walk with people to the foot of Jesus, right? I wanna walk with people to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Uh, and that's much different than coming down. So for me, proselytizing is I'm coming out and I'm going to deliver something and I'm going to grab you and I'm going to take you with me. But uh, for me, the, the kind of the proposing, the accompaniment is I'm going to go with you and we're going to go to Jesus together.
0: You know, I, I think a lot of people, I mean, I feel this way, have a deep sense of our own brokenness and woundedness and of our own need for Christ, for redemption, for healing. Uh, but maybe a lack of confidence that like how can I bring all this goodness and truth and beauty to somebody else when I'm a wreck? Yeah, I mean I imagine you encounter that sentiment a lot all the
1: time I'd enc- I encountered it in my own life. you know when I was twenty four years old I, I i really had an encounter with Jesus that transformed everything it was it was very healing, there was healing and deliverance and it was an amazing encounter and that changed how I saw myself and how I saw God. And so one of the things that I, as I work with individuals and with parishes, we, we kind of focus a lot on identity. What does it mean to be a son or a daughter of God? Because that means something, right? Uh, that, that to be a son or daughter of God means to be uh, a beloved of God. So by definition, by our very nature and by God's very nature, we are those who are loved by God. And that shifts and changes things, right? I'm a son of God not out of my own goodness but out of out of God's goodness out of Jesus's merit and the and through his sacrifice and through his life death and resurrection and the gift of his spirit I'm moved into this intimate relationship so it has nothing to do with my goodness and everything to do with Jesus and so when I share with people it's not hey I, you know I've got it figured out it's hey he's the one who's changed everything and so all I need to do is share not only my brokenness but share what the Lord's done with it and and that opens the hearts of, of people. So focusing on not only giving people the tools to equip them, but to understand themselves as sons and daughters and therefore to be in a different kind of relationship with, with Christ, right? In Jesus, there's no, in Christ, there's no condemnation, Paul says. Hmm. And so we have to live that out.
0: So uh, let's, t- let's turn this now to, to renewal of the parish. Yes. in, in given that background, what does parish renewal look like?
1: Oh, I mean, parish renewal, in, in many ways, it is the, I, I, I spent some time with um, Father James Mallon uh, from Divine Renovation. I did a parish m- mission for him, and, and after observing his leadership, I said, I think I found the secret sauce mm-hmm. uh, of Divine Renovation. And he said, what is it? I said, you take the very best of human organizational leadership and you connect that with a very deep understanding of evangelization and discipleship, and you wed it to the supernatural dimensions of life in Christ. And so uh, when I talk about parish renewal, that really is what that is, right?
0: you is- Say that formula again. You oh have three gosh. elements. Yes, I know okay. it is, right?
1: So uh, you take the very best in human organizational leadership. Uh-huh. You connect that to a deep understanding of evangelization and mission. uh uh-huh. And you wed that to the supernatural dimensions of life in Christ. Okay. And, so, uh, and so that is really essentially what parish renewal is about, right? God is pouring out his grace. Every parish, every diocese has all of the gifts, all of the graces necessary to fulfill its mission. And so what often is lacking is our cooperation with that. And so working in parish renewal, changing culture, all the things we talk about is really helping parishes how, learn how to nurture and cooperate with the grace that God is pouring out and sort of getting the unhealthy structures out of the way and raising up a generation of disciples who, who desire to live a missionary lifestyle uh, and then um, uh, kind of creating parish life around that reality and sending them out.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm, 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 I'm just hearing Pope Francis again and again and again in your language. I'm hearing Evangelii Gaudium again and again. And he, of course, he comes back over and over to putting a mission ahead of maintenance of structures, a willingness to, to subject some of those structures to uh, really rigorous scrutiny. If they're not serving the purpose of apostolate, not, no, people hear that language of scrutiny and, and destruction, and they, they, they get scared. They think he's trying to do some maybe doctrinally radical thing, but it could be something as simple as, you know, when are we scheduling or not scheduling Bible studies in the parish?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, it a very mundane kind of thing. I you know? love,
1: you know, even thinking about it, right? Most parishes have confession at, you know, 3.34 in the afternoon on a Saturday, which for families is actually one of the most inconvenient times to have it. So, uh, you know, even thinking about what might be better ways to do that, that the parish is a, and people people do get nervous when I talk like this. So I always have to preface everything by saying, you know, right before I was ordained, I made a promise of obedience. I made a, a you know, a, 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 uh, I, I kind of declared, you know, my willingness to be faithful to the magisterium, like all of that. I do not want to change any dogmatic or doctrinal reality of the church um, or the moral life proposed by the church. But um, when we look at parish life, we, we have essentially inherited a structure that's come to us from the 16th century, right, from the right. post-Reformation, and our culture has radically shifted, and so we have to really be willing. I always say, you know, can our parishes be renewed? Absolutely, because God's a God of renewal and resurrection. Um, what it will it take is pastoral courage to be willing to live our common baptismal vocation differently, right, to, to conceive of the parish differently, where, you know, the parish was the center of social life, and it was the center of ministry activity, and I think in the 21st century, you know, most of our ministry should not necessarily be done within the walls of the parish. Obviously the sacraments, the holy sacrifice of the mass, right. But the holy sacrifice of the mass, while the foundation and the, uh, the high point of the church's life, it doesn't exhaust the reality of the church's mission. So we have to go out. Uh, and so we have to be willing to look at our structures and say, what can we, what can we change? What needs to be changed so we can respond in this moment in time? And that does scare people, but, uh, but without that kind of creative destruction, right, I don't know if we will be able to bear as much fruit as we would, as God is calling us to do, right? We're, we're moving into a new age in many ways. And so we have to respond.
0: So you mentioned, uh, you know, having maybe some almost even architectural structures that, that uh, in ways of organizing ministry that go back to the 16th century, one of them you mentioned was thinking of the physical walls of the parish as being the sphere of ministry, right? What would be some other uh, uh, out-of-date notions that you think we ought to be alert to?
1: Oh, this is where I'm going to, you might get people emailing you at this point. Um, (laughs) Well, you know, I, so I always say that in its most broad sense, the church's mission is to make disciples, And this is—I'm going to get in trouble when I say this—but the church's mission isn't fundamentally to educate children. Um, You know, Peter, James, and John were not the first three superintendents of the Catholic school system, and so we have—we have come from the 16th century with a recognition that at that time the best way to keep people Catholic was to raise them in a catechetical environment that kind of mirrored a school environment. Right, And and so one of the things we focus on, all our energy in parish life is on the education and formation of children, and we don't give that same emphasis on adults. And so one of the things I like to say is that, you know, uh, is if we kind of reframe that just a little bit and helped parents become disciples, help them be formed in the faith, then they could take their role as their child's primary formator.
0: Okay, now we're really getting getting on brass tacks here, okay? Yeah. You know, a number of years ago, I think it's maybe 20 years ago, the USCCB, the American bishops, published a document called Their Hearts Are Burning Yes, on adult education. I read it. Yeah, it just blew my mind. Yep. Because what it actually called for, I don't see anybody doing. They right. said that, that adult education has to be the priority yeah. in space, time, and money yeah. in parish ministry. And that's, uh, I, that is definitely not reflected, I think, in most no, parishes. So to change right. that seems, honestly, I mean, impossibly difficult. When it, when schools are an important ministry, yep. and they are an expression of the church's apostolate and catechetical ministry, and they do make disciples, and we have to acknowledge that. So given the importance of Catholic schools to our identity and to our nation and to our, and to our church— How do you live up to that demand to make adult education just as important or more important than schools?
1: Yeah, I mean, I would say, I mean, I wouldn't even put it like, like adult form, I wouldn't put it like formation of adults against schools, but let's Mm -hmm. talk about just the catechetical reality of, of a parish, right? Um, uh, finding ways. And I think some people are trying to, to approach this with whole family catechesis. Uh-huh. Right. Right. So it involves the, that the whole family's involved because a lot of times, even with Catholic schools or inside a parish, you know, sometimes parents want to drop off a pagan and pick up a Catholic. Right. That's kind right. of what they, right. kind of sure. they want to do. Uh, so being able to support and walk with them so that they have opportunities to encounter the love of Jesus so that that this journey becomes real for them. Um, and I think part of that really has to come down to this is sort of like step zero or at least step one. Step zero would be gathering intercessors to pray for the renewal of a parish. But step one would be really taking a look at what is the vision and what is the mission of the parish? How, do, how does the parish see itself uh, fundamentally? How does, it, how does it see itself living out the mission that Christ has given it? And once that comes into place, if it's really about making disciples, right? If it's really about the maturation of disciples, right? If it's really about sharing Jesus with others, then we see everything we do through that lens. And it seems to me that um, only a disciple can make a disciple, right? In other words, you can only travel as far along the spiritual journey with someone else as you yourself have gone. And so um, if parents are the primary formators and the parents aren't disciples, then the parents will not be able to raise their children as disciples. And okay. so, right?
0: So Another we've question. got, yeah, go ahead. Question. I'm with you. Everything you're saying, I agree yeah, with. Yeah, I got gotcha. you. Um, uh, the focus on parents and children, Um Pope Francis urges us to go to groups that are not currently Agreed. visualized in the church's ministry. They're not they're being missed somehow. Um, we still have parents and children in the church, yep. but fewer and fewer in society. Yep. And fewer and fewer of the young people either are marrying or having children. And their social networks are completely disconnected from the language that we're using. Yep. How do we reach them, the nuns and the non-attached and the, and the non, spiritual yeah. and not religious and those that are cohabitating and don't want kids and, and where is, where is a place for them in the parish and how do we reach them?
1: Well, so, and this is where it becomes prudential, right? Uh, and, and so in many ways, I, I tell people like they have this, you've heard of the Catholics come home initiative, right? Mm-hmm. Where they have these, and they did this in Chicago and I just started at my parish and they were running the, the ads. They were beautiful ads, right? And my pastor looked at me and said, so what are we going to do? Uh, with this. And I said, well, we're not going to do anything with this right now because we're not prepared to meet people. Right. We just, I don't know what we would invite them to. Right. Because they'd, they'd come and then they would get the same thing that, that people often get, which is kind of a cold shoulder or a sense of, of, of not being connected. So I think what we need to do is really focus at least early on, at least for a little bit on the, the transformation of individuals in the parish into disciples Hmm. And, then, and then give them a sense of this mission and then, and then begin to build the processes and structures to go out and, 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 and to bring and welcome people in. That's, for me, the most important piece, because again, you know, what is, you know, is it Romans chapter 10, right? Um, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him whom they have not heard? And how can they hear if there's no one to preach? And how can someone preach if they're not sent? And so we really have to, rather than just tell people, oh, yeah, the mission of the church is to make disciples and you should invite them to Mass, we have to raise our people up as disciples who are so in love with Jesus that they want to invite others to experience that love. And then oh, we have to have a great to have answer. Them. Yeah, that's we have, to answer. have structures that are prepared for them. The problem is that takes a long time. Parish renewal is not a three year thing. Right? This, it is the work of a generation, unfortunately, right? We think about it that way. And mm. we, often mm. don't, we often don't have the attention span and even worse in our parochial system, right? We have priests uh, who are assigned maybe six years or seven years and maybe with an option to renew for another six, right? But then you have another priest who comes in and just based on the personality of the priest, all of the initiative that's been m- moving for the past 12 years could stop.
0: Okay. I got to jump in here. What you just said is so true. And it it brings me to a question I was going to say for the end, but I think it's very (laughs) relevant now because of the vocation crisis. Many of our churches are pastored by wonderful priests from other cultures who have fantastic hearts, but maybe are less familiar with the dynamics of American Catholic culture. Often they're not even incarnated in our diocese and they'll only stay a few years. How does this dynamic affect uh, your mission, our, your ideas about parish renewal, and what Catholics can do in their own dioceses and own parishes.
1: I mean, it obviously makes things more challenging, right? I mean, I think those priests bring tremendous gifts. And, Absolutely, like no said, doubt a about Tremendous it. heart, but it, it does. How do you build long term? How do you build across generations? And and so one of the things I think that we need to do is with all priests, and not even just priests who are international priests who who might become, is we have to help form them as Uh, as missionaries, right? Because I think in many ways in seminary formation, uh, priests, and I had one pastor who actually shared this with me and he blew me away when he said this, he goes, when I was in, when I was in seminary, I was formed to be a chaplain. I was formed to take care of the spiritual needs of my community. I wasn't formed to be a missionary who raised up other missionaries and sent them out. And so we have to work with our pastors, in particular those who are coming from different cultures because, because the pastor can't do everything. And the, just like Jesus, the pastor has to raise up uh, collaborators. He has to raise up men and women who are disciples, and that means he may need to disciple them himself, uh, uh, and then call them into service and surround himself. That's why um, a lot of the groups that are working in parish renewal nowadays, um, I'm thinking Amazing Parish and Divine Renovation, and even the work I do is I recommend forming a leadership team. Right where mm, where yeah. the where the pastor doesn't abdicate his canonical responsibility, but he leads through a team. Right, um, and he recognizes that he may not have all of the gifts or all of the answers. Um, and in in that creative tension, right, in in that sort of way of of um, bringing a problem together that it can be chewed on, um, uh, the best and the most uh, kind of the best discernment can happen in that place, but it requires a pastor to have a different understanding of their role as pastor.
0: You know, I'm going to throw a caveat in uh, asking the questions about how does, how do non-incarnated foreign priests affect this, this move for parish renewal we're talking about. I will say in my own life uh, and I've been a Catholic now 17, 18 years, the, it is the foreign clergy who have, in my life personally often done the most to go to the peripheries and seek out areas of ministry that are not presently being reached and have been magnificent examples of missionary discipleship. I mean, just the fact that they cross the ocean, I mean, it's one huge thing, but I mean, honestly, in their outreach to families and individuals are just outstanding. So the question does not imply any deficit right in their own personal vocation. And oftentimes they are exemplary in their, in their, uh, awareness of their vocation.
1: I, I would agree 100%. The challenge is how do you work within a different cultural structure, right? That's the, right. That is the biggest challenge. And then how do you change the culture? Because you got to figure out how to work in that, cult, that structure, that culture right now, and then you got to try to move it towards a missionary mindset. So that, that can be doubly challenging. And I think that's why if, if pastors, whether they're kind of international priests or they're, they're incarnated into the diocese and, you know, and they were ordained for the diocese, um, they really need to surround themselves with leadership um, that, can, that can really expand um, uh, their ability to, what's the word I'm looking for, to delegate and to collaborate with others so that everything doesn't have to be held by them.
0: Okay, so some of the people listening to this podcast will be DREs and parish catechetical leaders in our own yes. diocese. Um, what, how would you advise them? If they're hearing this podcast and thinking, "Yeah, that would that would benefit our parish," how did they approach a priest and say, "Can we bring this structure to our own ministry?" What's the best way to have that conversation?
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's the million-dollar question. I mean, first of all, I'd pray a lot. Yeah. Um, uh, second of all, I don't know if I would bro. I I don't know if I would broach it specifically with the, a particular structure. I might say, yes. "Hey, how do we? You know, can we take a look at how we?" Really focus on mission at the parish.
0: Okay. okay. Right.
1: Um, and then you know, and then there are lots of resources, right? There's lots of and and even going through, uh, you know, with the staff, right? Maybe the staff takes a look at forming intentional disciples or divine renovation or you know, ablaze or whatever book that might be, uh, and works at it together, and then begins to have that conversation, right? Uh, I I think that is that will most likely bear more fruit than saying, how do we bring in this one structure? Because once you start talking about that, because our priests are, um, in, in many, many places, they are overrun by the administrative demands yes. of, of parish life. And so when you talk like that, the translation goes to, oh, great, that's one more thing I have to do. Like, how yeah. what, is, what does this mean? So kind of coming at it from a place of, let's take a look, how do we focus on mission? I think it makes it a little bit less... Um, threatening in that sense and enables the conversation to happen among the whole staff.
0: Okay. So what I'm sure you've encountered this. What about the large, uh, you know, financially solvent parish with a well-established culture, long-serving pastors and ministries, um, that, uh, you know, they, got a lot of people coming on Sunday and a lot of activity in and out the door throughout the week, you know, does that, does that parish need to think about renewal and missionary discipleship?
1: Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think in some ways more than the other parishes do. And that's the challenge, right? um, uh, parishes that are successful or active or vibrant. And I use scare quotes there only because that's how they're often described. Um, they are actually harder to work with on this role for renewal because they kind of sense that it's working there. There's no discontent, you know, there's in the book ablaze. I I said that there's a, there's a formula, um, the Glyker formula. And it's basically, it's not, it's really a collection of variables, but basically if you want to change but if you want to change the culture, right, you need to actually have discontent with the current state. And if there's not discontent with the current state, it's that much harder to change the culture. Uh, and so part of working with them is trying to help them see what the church means by vibrancy and fruitfulness, right? And, and so I always say that busyness does not equal fruitfulness. Activity does not equal life. So we have to help them see that the, the mission of the parish is to make disciples, Right. Uh, and so the real question to ask is how many disciples have we produced? Um, and uh, it, parishes can have lots. I've, I've, I'm a part of one, a parish that is very vibrant and spiritually dead. Right. Where, and, and what I mean by spiritually dead is not that there's no spirituality and not that conversion doesn't happen and not that there are no disciples, but there is no intentional. Um, uh, focused approach to helping others encounter Jesus and become disciples. And as a result, we do not have any sense at all about how many disciples we might be producing in any given time.
0: So uh, if we're not just looking for numbers, if we're not just trying to measure attendance, yeah, how would you evaluate success? Oh, that, so this that is, yeah. I mean, here's the problem. <laughs>
1: uh, John chapter 15, verse eight, Jesus gives a couple, he, gets, he says a couple things, right? By this is my father glorified that you would bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. And so Jesus gives a a measuring stick for discipleship, right? What is the proof of discipleship according to Jesus? It's fruitfulness, right? Fruitfulness uh, in terms of personal holiness, right? We talk about Paul uh, and Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, 23, the fruits of the Spirit. So in terms of personal holiness and in terms of mission. And so the problem is, we our parishes structurally are not set up to measure that. We are set up to measure throughput how many people have received the sacraments, how many people come to our events, right? And we, we don't want to measure throughput. We want to measure outcomes. And in order to measure outcomes, here's the, here's the, the nasty part of that. We have to be in relationship with our people. So we, have to, we actually have to be walking with people. We have to know who they are so that we can see the fruits of the Spirit beginning to, to work in their life. And, and we can you can tri- I would say you can triangulate to see if someone is a disciple, right? you can ask them about their relationship with Jesus. And if they use personal language, even if their theology isn't perfect, right? If they use personal language, there's, a, there's an indicator that they might be in that place of discipleship. Do you see the fruits of the Spirit at work in their life? Are they being changed and transformed? Are, is their life being shaped by the disciplines of a disciple? Right, daily scripture reading, daily prayer, fellowship, sacramental life, service to the world, evangelization, all of those things. And then the spiritual gifts that they receive at baptism, are they manifesting in their life? Because the spiritual gifts manifest when um, someone's faith in Christ becomes personal. And so, if we can kind of know our people to a degree that we can have those kinds of conversations and see those kinds of things, we can measure fruitfulness.
0: Wow, that, that, that takes l- listening to you. I'm thinking I could I could s- certainly see doing that. You know, in a kind of anecdotal way through personal relationship with individuals Mm -hmm. Um, and the risk, if I'm trying to evaluate pastoral ministry is what's going to appear salient to me when I'm trying to do that evaluation, Mm -hmm. it's going to be the outlier. It's going to be the, you know, the standout example of missionary discipleship and it's all the people that I don't see that I'm, that's not going to get counted in that kind of evaluation.
1: It's uh, right. And so at least at first, right, because I, I'm thinking uh, like even um, with catechetical ministry, right, with, uh, with religious formation, if our catechists can be formed in such a way that they understand how to have conversations with others to see where they might be in the spiritual journey, and so that they find ways then to be in relationship with the families of the students that they are walking with, right, then the catechist doesn't have to do that. The, the uh, the, the the DRE doesn't have to do that. The, they might have 12, 15, 20 catechists who can, and they can reach out into that community. And often, and, and and that's where it kind of has to start. Then when you are, remember we talked about raising up these missionary leaders and then in going out and inviting people in, then we have a group of people who understand how to have those conversations as the unchurched find their way in or the dischurched, right? Uh, find their way in um, uh, to the walls of our parish community or are in relationship with the members of our community. Um, but that takes work and that takes being able to, to raise that up, right? You've got to raise up people to be able to do that. And so, uh, and the problem is what do we get evaluated on?
0: Right. So I got a call the other day from a young man who was a convert to the church and he'd been in the church for a few years and he was sad because he told me that the ministries that had brought him into the church he felt like since he had become catholic had had themselves become more and more ideologically possessed and and were construing their ministry in in very combative terms that he found alienating yes and i'm wondering is that a dynamic that you have witnessed? Do you think it has increased in recent years as our culture has gotten more ideologically divided? And does that obscure what, I mean, does some kind of construal of ideological purity, ecclesiastical or otherwise obscure uh, the kind of criteria that you articulated, which are the fruits of the spirit and missionary discipleship?
1: Wow. I mean, it's a really, that's a good question. And it's a tough question. I mean, I would say yes. It has obscured, uh, you know, the the outreach, the evangelization efforts. Um, it it really is a challenge, right? Cardinal George, who was the ordinary here in Chicago, um, he said this: "He said you cannot evangelize what you do not love." And and so the challenge that we have, because in the church today we talk a lot about, um, culture war, right? We talk a lot about the culture war. And, you know, the challenge is it's really hard to evangelize a culture you see yourself at
0: war with. That is a beautiful, challenging statement. Yeah. You cannot evangelize what you do not love. That's amazing. And And that's Jesus.
1: That's Jesus. So so Hmm. the other piece is that when Jesus—Jesus is the source and the cause of our unity. And when Jesus is not the center of our own life and not the center of our community life, then that— communion that we are called into actually devolves into tribalism. And so I think when we, when we talk about the ideological um, uh, distance that we see in our parishes, I think that is a direct um, a correlation to a lack of discipleship. And so that is the challenge. It's, you know... Um, Pope Francis talks about, you know, not just, it's, it, it's, it's not just the change of an, of an age, it's an age of change, right? It's, it's things have shifted. And uh, for younger people now, they don't look at the world through um, sort of objective definitions. I was raised that way, right? I was raised, uh, I'm, a, I'm a very, very early Gen Xer, uh, born in 1969. I was raised with objective definitions, right? I know that marriage is the sacramental union between one man and one woman. I know that. And therefore I know what marriage is and I know what it isn't and I can shape my life around that definition. But in the 21st century, and really in the, le- in the latter 20th century, that's not... The-, the script is flipped. People don't begin with objective definition and then shape their life around that definition. They actually begin with life experience and then they create definitions from that life experience. And so the challenge that we have when we are very ideologically focused or we're out basically to make sure people believe the right things right before they can come into the church. Um, uh, Often I I think what we are doing there is um, we're, we're really asking them to, um, I just lost my thread. It was really going to be good too. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What was I, what we were talking about there, I totally lost it. Oh, it's kind of this ideological purity, right? What, what, what we want to do is we, we, We begin, when we have that focus, on definition, which is the very last and least persuasive way that's going to move people who are in younger generations because they don't count definition as the starting point. For them, definition is the ending point. Their life experience is the starting point. So so this requires a conversion of heart and it requires a conversion of approach. And that's the challenge. It can feel... It can feel like you're not being a good Catholic, right? Like when I meet people and I'm friends, I, I, I don't like to scandalize people, although maybe the unredeemed part of me likes to shock them a little bit, but I'm friends with, with people who practice witchcraft, who are Satanists of all kinds, uh, philosophical Satanists and actual Satanists, right? And why am I friends with them? Because, well, I'm not gonna abandon them because Jesus wouldn't, right? It, it doesn't mean I participate in what they participate in, But I try to be as present as I can with them and kind of walk with them to the degree that I can to demonstrate the love of God. And so when you're first in a relationship with somebody, when you're trying to walk with them, you can't begin by telling them all the things about themselves they have to change before they'll be acceptable to you, right? We wouldn't be in any relationships that way. So it can kind of feel like we're betraying the church's teaching. There's this apostolic tension. Sherry Waddell talks about this, right? That we have to be faithful to Christ as he reveals himself in the church, right, in the tradition, but we also have to be faithful to Christ as he reveals himself to the, in the person in front of us. And so as a deacon, in one sense, my ministry is, is easier. It's prescripted, right? It, it, like I have a book that tells me, right, <laughs> do this, do that. But when a lay person goes out into the city and they meet a homeless person, right, they, they can't go, hold on one second, let me go to page 78 and read the rubrics, right? So this really requires this tension at some point in the journey when you earn the right to speak into the life of the person, when they have encountered Jesus and they're wrestling with the reality of the Father's love, we can speak that truth into their hearts, right? The theology of the body or the church's moral teaching. But at the beginning, that is often a place where we're not going to bear fruit. And so that's what we're talking about with this kind of change of heart and change of approach.
0: You know, while you were talking, I was thinking about an episode from the life of C.S. Lewis, and I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis. Uh, who was a great apologist and a great novelist. Uh, but midpoint of his career, he had a public debate with Elizabeth Anscombe, the Catholic philosopher, and she devastated him, absolutely tore him apart. And she didn't disagree with his, with his view of God. She just thought he had a technical problem in his, in his philosophical rhetoric, but it so unnerved him. Uh, that he, he basically never went back to formal apologetics again and turned to novel writing. And the way I construe that in my own mind is that Lewis became disillusioned with simply defining the good and became more interested in demonstrating it, showing it. I, you know, that's, that's such a, I'm, I'm so glad you kind of mentioned that because I think
1: the, the approach that has worked over the past couple of hundred years, right, which is basically that we're going to lead with the church's philosophical and intellectual tradition, right? I think we're at a place in time that's more like the early church. It's more like the first four centuries, where it's really about encountering the love of God in Jesus Christ and then getting to the reality of the philosophical and, and intellectual underpinning. And it's not to say that that's a betrayal of reason, but we look at the life of Jesus. He actually would often manifest the kingdom of God first and then teach and then proclaim. And so many people have to be set free, to be healed, to be delivered before they can respond to the invitation of Jesus to relationship.
0: You know, I, as I, I've been thinking all about the life of Christ personally, reading Pope Benedict's life of Christ and other other works like that, and one of the things that's been striking me, my own reflection, is how rarely Jesus answers a direct a direct question with a propositional answer. Yep. And, and I, the way I read Mark chapter 10, when the rich young ruler comes to Christ and says, what should I do to be saved? Jesus is absolutely playing with the kid and refuses to be taken in by providing a formula. Yep. And so he just says, well, you know what to do. Moses told you what to do, you know, and he knows the guy's unsatisfied. And what he finally offers him is come and follow me. You know, I'll show you not a propositional knowledge of salvation, but a, but a perspectival procedural awareness of dwelling with my person. So you can experience salvation in me, in a relationship that will transcend and be far deeper than any sort of ritual formula I can give you that can be written on tablets of stone. (sighs) Wow.
1: That is so powerful right there. I mean you're, I, I would agree with you 100 percent. I always tell people you can't have a relationship with dogma right Now you can have a relationship with the one from whom dogma flows and the one to whom dogma points, the person of Jesus
0: now, and I, the catechism says something about dogma that I love. The Catechism says dogmas are lights mm. that illumine our path yeah. right and and it, it, that's but you, you have to walk the path yep. Yeah, and I think part
1: of the challenge is what we're not good at as Catholics uh, is helping each other or walking with another on the path, right? And and I think this is what Pope Francis has really been pounding, and I think it's the essence of Jesus's methodology, which is, you know, in encountering people and, and walking with them. That's why um, when the disciples of John the Baptist, and I think it's Andrew, encounter Jesus, right? And and they say to Jesus, where are you staying? I always feel like that's actually the wrong question to ask because what does Jesus invite them to do? Jesus says, come and see, right? The right question to ask, I think from the perspective of Jesus would be, you know, master, where are you going? Right. Where are you going that I might follow you? Not where are you staying? Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and so Jesus invites them. He doesn't, he doesn't just say, Oh, I'm down by the docks and you can catch me there. He says, mm-hmm. he says, come and see, right. Make the journey, follow me. And, and I think we have to be better at proposing that and being willing to walk with people in that in all their messiness and all their ideological impurity. Right. And, and, and I'm not talking obviously about um, allowing people into full initiation in the church without them making a proper, you know, statement of faith. And I'm not talking about that, but simply having a place in the parish, right. Even when people haven't got the Catholic thing figured out yet, right. We've got to create that space for them.
0: You know, we're talking about dogma relationship. I do want to say the, the most dogmatic theologically astute and honestly, theologically inflexible person I've ever known in my life was also the most pastorally aware, personally present and charitable person I've ever known. And it was yeah. a Dominican priest, right. Uh, who was an Irish Dominican. We everybody around here knows him as father Lambert green. And he was my spiritual director and friend and counselor for many, many years, wonderful human mm-hmm. being, uh, who taught me the dogmas of the faith, but through love, Yep. you know, and so they don't have to be in conflict with one another.
1: They shouldn't be. Right. I mean, so it sounds like, right. You met the rare person who's
0: integrated. Yeah. And he was profoundly philosophical too. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that why Dominicans often are? Uh, they, they, They sure are. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, well, uh, let's see. Last thing, and I think we'll probably be done. So, you, you talk about five paradigm shifts that a parish needs to make in your yes. book of Blaze, right? Yeah. And uh, maybe you want to just mention a couple of those or all of them if you feel like it.
1: Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I, I, I talk about, par- you know, culture is made up of values. And these paradigm shifts are like macro values, right? These are like the levers, I think, that that can really move the culture a lot. I, you know, one, the first one I talk about is moving from a culture of um, um, institutional faith to a culture of intentional faith. Uh, and what I mean by that is not that the institution of the church is bad or need, whatever needs to be reformed or anything like that. But in a culture of institutional faith, we, we kind of evaluate, in a sense, uh, our um, participation in, in um, the life of Christ by doing institutional things, so if you ask a Catholic if they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, they will often reply, "Yeah, I go to mass, right? Or I pray the Rosary." And and in a culture of institutional faith, right, there is a disconnect between um, the action and activity and the interior disposition, right. And so I I fulfill the obligation. I go to mass. Therefore, I've got the relationship thing hammered down, right? Or um or you know I. I know people, even my own family, I have people in my own family who they love the First Friday devotions, love the First Friday devotions, right? And they do the First Friday devotions, but if you talk with them, right, you'll see that it's not based, they don't love the First Friday devotions because it draws them ever deeper into union with, with Christ and his, and his mother, anything like that. They do the First Friday devotions because of the promise that if they, if they follow the First Friday devotions at the moment of death, right, Mary will send her angels to escort them right into heaven, and so for them, it's like fire insurance. And if the first Friday devotions don't work, they do the first Saturday devotions, right? And so they just sort of line them up that way. That is a very institutional culture, right? We, by, we, we kind of relate to God by doing institutional things, not necessarily reflecting on the interior disposition.
0: The catechism, uh, paragraph 2111, I memorized that one, right? <laughs> addresses exactly what you just said and says that's superstition. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, and, and,
1: and in that kind of culture, um, uh, our people can become transactional and just use the language, right? Think of the language that people use. I'm here to get the sacrament. I want my children to get the sacraments, as if the sacraments are something you can pull off a shelf and, and bring up to the register. And if you, if you ask them to go through in you know, more intense formation, like we want the parents to come on a retreat as well as the children for First Holy Communion, what you've effectively done is raised the price of the sacrament for that person who is in an institutional hmm, mindset. Hmm, hmm. And Catholics are one thing, if, if not anything, and that is they are value shoppers. And so they will go where they can get the sacrament cheaper, right? And so we want to we kind of move that paradigm into an, in, an intentional faith where growing in a relationship with Jesus Christ and, and intimacy with him is uh, at the heart of parish life, and it's at the heart of the activity of the leaders of the parish to help people grow in that relationship, Right. Where that's the, that's the fundamental beginning point in a sense. Um, and then I think I'm going to skip a couple, but the, the next one really, I think, I think is, is important is moving from a culture of, um, engagement to a culture of encounter. Right. And by engagement, I mean, getting people involved in the life of the community, like throwing bodies at problems and getting people, you know, I feel bad for the neophytes who come in through RCIA because often like we suck the life out of them right away. Right. (laughs) We, 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 don't, we don't let them marinate a little bit, right? And grow and mature. Now there's a way of doing that, of having them go on mission and serve and then reflect, but we just kind of need bodies sometimes. And that's the kind of cultural shift I'm talking about from, from a culture of engagement, getting people involved to a culture of encounter where everything in the life of the parish is seen through the lens of encounter. And so parishes that are in that paradigm of encounter will ask themselves this question, how does our parish registration process foster an encounter with Jesus Christ, because it honestly should. So I think those are like the two main, I mean, there's three more, but you know, I could go on for the next hour about those.
0: Deacon, this is, this is dynamite stuff. Thank this you. is dynamite stuff. And I, listening to you, I, I don't feel like you're reading from a script. I feel like these are principles that you've internalized, yes. that they characterize your personality as a Catholic uh you know from your engagement with the charisma to the way you think about problems what you think about persons um i feel like i've had an encounter over the last hour talking with you i feel like this has been an exercise in accompaniment and missionary discipleship oh, having a conversation God. and well, I, I, f- I asked you my hard questions and <laughs> and you were fantastic
1: so thank you i feel I, the same way that i in fact I, you know i could go on for another 3 hours this is I feel the presence of God as we're just having this conversation. So well, thank you.
0: I've, I've had a great time and I, I, I hope our listeners enjoy it. Um, it, it. This is a, this has been a privilege. If you enjoyed the podcast, uh, please recommend us, write us a review. Um, Alex, who do we have next week? Father, Father Hezekiah from the Institute for Catholic culture, our guest next week on living Catholic, totally different speed fantastic guest. I can't wait for that one also. Yeah. Deacon, thank you again so much for being with us today on Living Catholic.
1: You are welcome. Thanks for the invitation.